sometimes you'll see advertisements on television or Facebook or someplace about a product. And you'll get that product in your head and you'll think, I've just got to have it, right? I mean, it's something, especially right now with food. If I showed you a couple of food advertisements, we'd all be hungry and ready to leave this place. Well, on Facebook, uh, several weeks ago, I saw this advertisement for new potato chips. Some of you have seen that. Sausage, gravy, and biscuit potato chips. Ooh. So I just got this in my head. It just really sounded delicious. And I just waited and waited. I, and I have to tell you, I stopped at a store a couple of times to see if they were there yet. They weren't there. There was this great anticipation. And finally, a friend brought me a bag. Not quite what I anticipated. Uh, please do not flood me with bags of sausage. Uh, biscuits and gravy, potato chips. But you know, sometimes as we anticipate something, it isn't really like the real thing, either for bad or for good. In the case of the message of John the Baptist, what John previews as a coming attraction is so much better even than he could even explain. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the, the message that John preaches to the people who come out to the desert to hear this crazy wild man speaking words from God. Uh, let's look first at Matthew 3, 1 through 2, and then we'll move right over to the book of Luke. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now over to Luke 3. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him, the valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level, the curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth, and then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. Matthew's summary of this entire message is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is coming. Now that expression, kingdom of heaven, is found only in Matthew 33 times. Elsewhere in the Gospels, it's called the kingdom of God. Now, what's with this? Does that mean that Matthew's wrong and the other Gospels are right? Or what, what, what is that? Well, they're the same thing. Matthew, being a good Jewish person that he was, did not even want to take the chance of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so rather than saying the kingdom of God, he called it the kingdom of heaven. So when we read in the scriptures of the kingdom of God, it is either way interchangeable. Now, just as a side note, wouldn't that be interesting today that if we were to be so careful with the Word of God that we would not even flippantly toss it around as so many of us do. Matthew tells us a little bit about John's message. It's repent because that kingdom is coming. And then John goes just a little bit farther. Now, when I think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the word I hear is kingdom. And I think of things like castles and knights and crusades and conquests and sword fights and power and serfs and servants and vassals and, you know, all that stuff. I think of that. I think of political intrigue. I think of wars, uh, off with their heads, you know, that kind of stuff. That's what I think of when I think of kingdoms. And do you know, when the listeners to John's message heard the word kingdom, especially kingdom of heaven, they heard a similar thing because they were expecting a political revolution. And yet, this preview of coming attractions would tell a different story of a different kind of a revolution. So, let's move on just a little bit and read Luke 
3, 7 through 10, because this begins to bring John's message out even further. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowd asked, what should we do? John tells us about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God requires preparation. You must be ready. Now, the people who heard this would understand because if a Roman dignitary or ruler were to come into the area, they would need to prepare the roadways, make them straight, make them smooth so that the royalty can proceed unhindered. Get ready for the king. Barclay describes the coronation of the Queen of England where he said, Everybody filed into the cathedral and was ready for the queen, the queen to be, to process down the aisle. And before she did, the sweepers came in and sweeped the aisle and cleaned the aisle to prepare for the royal procession. This is exactly the picture that John paints. Everyone must get ready. In other words, you're not ready. You better get ready to prepare for this king. So the start of a spiritual transformation, the start of our move into the kingdom of God begins with an assessment of where we are right now. And that assessment is this. We are not okay. We don't have everything under control. We need to straighten it out and prepare for what's coming. I don't really think the people who heard this message love to be called snakes. You know, that, you know, as you study modern preaching, you don't really get the, the chapter on how to call people names. That's just not the kind of thing we do nowadays. But this is John's message right in your face. You brood of vipers, he says. You need to make some changes for the new king is coming and a new kingdom is coming. This is a hard truth to hear for them. But isn't it a hard truth for us to hear as well? We're no different than that. We don't want to hear that we need to change anything. We're absolutely okay just the way we are. In fact, Linda Gottlieb, who is a psychotherapist, did a a longitudinal study for 11 years of, uh, the question was, why are psychotherapy patients declining rather than, than, than increasing? And here's what she said. Psychotherapy involves the long, hard work of facing our own issues. But many people today would rather blame others for their problems. In other words, psychotherapists used to see patients who weren't happy and wanted to understand themselves. Now they see more patients who come in because they wanted someone else or something else to change. It's not me. I need you to help me to cope with this problem in my life, this person in my life, this event in my life, because I'm being mistreated. It's not my responsibility. I don't need to change. We're not any different than the people who John spoke to. The first step in spiritual transformation is realizing that all of us need preparation to receive the king. All of us need preparation for the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus asked the question, do you really, really want to get well? 
Do you want to get well? If you don't, you can stop listening right now because that's the first step. There are changes that need to be made and you need to prepare for that. But there's another thing we see here. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Now, you, if you've been in church or Sunday school or studied the Bible for any length of time, you'll understand that when these people heard about the kingdom of God, they expected the Romans to be overthrown. They expected this new Messiah or leader to come and just change everything, put the Jewish people back into power, restore the era of peace and prosperity with King, like King David had before, and really them be restored to favored nation status among all those other pagan nations. That's the expectation that they had. They had no doubt that they were God's chosen people. But John says, nobody is safe from judgment. So just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean anything anymore. So in fact, God could take a rock and make his own children. So don't count on your family heritage, your tradition, or your ethnicity to say that you are okay before God. The prophecy of Isaiah says all people, not some people, will see the salvation from God. No one is too good or no one is too bad to be welcomed into his kingdom. I like this quote. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up good people and excluding the bad people for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Religion can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. That's who we are. All are welcome. There are no walls of separation. Jesus described these kinds of people that would be in his kingdom. The poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, the humble, those who are persecuted, those who are wanting mercy, those who need justice, the peaceful. All of these people who might be written off are people who Jesus welcomes, the blind and the lame and all of those who society cast aside. All of these people are welcome. There are no walls. But we're not much different are we, than the people of that century, trying to put up walls between us, the good people, and the bad people, as if there are really any good people? Now, I have to tell you a story that I may have said before, but you've probably forgotten, because I've forgotten when I told it. But it's a little sad story. 30, 35 years ago, where I was working at a small Christian college, and one of my responsibilities was to take teams of kids out, college kids out, to churches to do things on weekends. We teach, preach, Sunday school, music, all that kind of thing. And this particular Sunday, we were invited to go out to a church, nameless church, you'll see why later, and uh, bring a music team and some teachers and a student preacher. So we did. We got there early as usual. I introduced the student preacher to the preacher who greeted us there. and We got ourselves all set up and ready to sing and all that. And a little bit later, the preacher came up to me and he said, we went over in the corner and he said, our leadership has decided that uh, I should preach today. I said, oh. So I had to tell the student preacher that his preparation was in vain and he had to not preach that Sunday. That's sad enough. But you have to realize the preacher was African-American. I know why he wasn't allowed to speak. 
You cannot choose who God will welcome into his kingdom. You need to be ready. You need to be welcoming because all are welcome into his kingdom. But there's a catch to that welcome. All must produce. There is action needed in the kingdom of God. Remember what he said? When that fruit tree doesn't bear fruit, we're going to chop it down and burn it up. You need to show by your actions, John says, that you've really changed your life. Repentance is a 180-degree change. Don't just talk of turning back to God, he says. Really do it. There are no shortcuts. Being a part of the kingdom of God is not just about showing up. It's about stepping up. And that reminds me of another rather humorous but sort of sad story of a man named Wesley, Wesley French, who sold his truck. And then he decided that he didn't want to sell his truck and he wanted it back. He and a group of his brilliant friends decided the best way to get his truck back would be to steal it from the guy that bought it from him. And so they concocted this thing. They went, they beat the guy up with a two-by-four and stole the truck. Now, they were afraid they might get caught. And so they had another clever idea, which was to take black spray paint and spray paint the green vehicle. And they got away with it for a short time until they crossed the state lines and the state police stopped them because they forgot that they had the same license plate on the vehicle. One observer said, now Wesley is making license plates. <laughs> the point of that story is you cannot spray paint over your life in hopes that an outward change will make an inward difference. That's what John is saying here. Just because you say something, if you don't do it. Remember what James said? Don't just hear the word. Do something about it. Now, this is disturbing to the people, especially when he talks about fiery judgment and burning up fruitless trees. And so they ask the question, like many times in Scripture, the crowd asks, what should we do about it? What should we do? And so we find portion of John's message again, starting in verse uh, 11. John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and said, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. These are just three examples of transformed lives in the kingdom of God. These are proofs or evidence that the kingdom of God has come into the life of people. The first one talks about kingdom people being generous and compassionate, giving of what they have to other people. We should share with one another. God cannot stand for folks not to have something while we have everything. And so he challenges, John challenges the people with this new ethic of the kingdom of God. You are to be generous. You're not to hold on things just for yourself, but God has given you the ability to have things so that you can bless and help other people. The second one is uh, kingdom people are ethical in their vocations. This is the place where many people get tripped up. They believe they can compartmentalize their religious life and their business life. 
I've even had business people tell me, you can't live like Jesus and be a good businessman. Kingdom people are ethical and have integrity. They say what they mean. They do what they say. They have the highest integrity in the community. These tax collectors didn't have high. So you can imagine what would happen. Don't collect any more than is really due you. And then the soldiers who were brutes, who were bullies, who were powerful. Kingdom people don't use their power and influence over other people. They don't push. They don't bully. They don't intimidate. They don't overly criticize and berate other people. They use their power and influence for good. Now, these are just three examples, but you know, if we all paid attention to just those three examples, we would have plenty to work on, wouldn't we? The generosity that we need, the ethical living that we need, the fact that we don't use our power over other people to lord it over them or to hurt them in any way, that is a lifetime of work, and yet that is just a preview of what kingdom people are like. And Jesus begins to teach and preach more about how kingdom people should behave. Because remember, God will chop down those unfruitful trees because they have not proved they are part of the kingdom of God. You know, we heard at the uh, Global Leadership Summit a man named Adam Grant give a talk about givers and takers. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it based on his research. He says there are three kinds of people in this world, givers, takers, and matchers. You kind of understand what a taker is. A taker is a person who just, in business, just does anything and everything they can to reach the top. Everybody knows they're out for themselves, and you just don't count on them because if you do, you'll be disappointed. Now, the giver, on the other hand, is the person who wants to help other people, who goes the extra mile, all the kinds of things that you might expect of a giver, a person who doesn't really want anything in return. A matcher is a person who says, I'll help you if you help me. I'll give you a favor, you owe me a favor. They do a lot of networking so they can get ahead. He said in the research that in the short term, takers win. They are effective. But in the long term, givers always are more successful and effective. There's a number of reasons for that. One is people get so sick and tired of the takers after a while that nobody wants anything to do with them. But isn't it interesting that this, there was a whole talk and a whole body of research on givers live a more successful business life when God's Word tells us that giving is one of the most top priorities of life in the kingdom of God. Hmm, took us a long time to catch up, didn't it, to the kingdom of God. Everyone needs to get ready. Everyone is welcome, and everyone needs to change or face God's judgment. This doesn't really sound like that much good news, the judgment and the fire part, if we left it there. But there's another part of John's message that I think we need to hear. We find that in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. 
He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are from the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard and how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remain under God's angry judgment. One last thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is fully realized in Jesus. He is the coming attraction. He is the one to whom John is pointing. He is the one that we need to get ready for. He is the one that welcomes everyone. He is the one that says, we need to change our lives. So if you want to understand God better, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is up to in this world, look to Jesus. If you want to know how God's people should behave and join Him as He blesses the world, look to Jesus. If you want to experience eternal, everlasting life, you guessed it, look to Jesus. He is the one to whom John is pointing. He brings in the kingdom of God. He is the king. Now, as I look around our world, it sure doesn't seem like the kingdom of God has much of a foothold anymore. It is really depressing. I don't know about you. It is depressing. All the things that are going on in our country, in our world, people are being martyred. It just seems like everyone is going in the opposite direction. And I really get worried. I don't know about you, but I do. I hardly even watch the news anymore. It just, I just can't really take it. I'm reminded of that old advertising slogan. Maybe it's still a slogan. You're in good hands with... Yeah, Allstate. Reggie McNeil is one of my favorite writers, and he says this. We can be encouraged by the good news that the kingdom of heaven is doing just fine. It is ever-present, ever-working, and ever-expanding. God is quite capable of managing his own kingdom. Did you hear that? God is quite capable of managing his own kingdom. Therefore, we don't have to decide who's a part of God's kingdom. We can't name that. We just have to worry about ourselves and understand that we are in good hands with the one who holds all things together. McNeil goes on to say, My urgency is rooted in the desire that we not miss out on being a part of what God is already doing in this world. We don't want to miss out on this. This is like a preview of a coming attraction, and it's going to be so much better than we even read or see in the pages of the Bible. The life that God promises both now and eternally is so much better than we could ever ask or imagine. So he wants us to join his revolution, his way, in his kingdom. So, if you've never crossed over the line of faith and all this sort of sounds odd to you, or even if you're a long-time seasoned believer, 
There's just one statement that I want you to take away today. One statement I want you to consider that if you really act on that statement can bring you in line with the kingdom of God, that can line you up every day with being who God wants you to be in his kingdom, to become more like the king. It's not a hard sentence, but it is hard to do. Are you ready for it? Here it is. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. Okay. If you believe that, say it with me. He must become. I must become. Well, that was underwhelming. (laughs) He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. It's like it's going to be some great tragedy that you've become less and less. I mean, it's not working for you anyway, is it? The only answer is placing the king in the right spot and you in the right spot. So, with a little more feeling, let's try it again. He must be greater and greater I must become less and less. This may be your life verse. You may need this. Every morning when you get up, how can I be less and less? In your workplace, in your family, here at the church, wherever it might be, who's on the throne? Every day, in every way, he is to be greater and greater. God gives us the choice. It says even at the end of the John 3 passage, those who don't believe will be accounted for in judgment. Now, this is a scary thing, except for the fact that God is not capricious about this judgment because he will give you finally what you've always wanted. If you want to be free of him, if you want to live your life apart from him, he will let that happen to you in the judgment. He says, depart from me, I never knew you because you never knew him. So you get the choice. You're determining what's going to happen. I pray that you'll make the right choice. And he will become greater. You will become less. 